Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Saul Levine. Saul is Executive Director of the Trade and Industrial Policies Strategies, better known perhaps as TIPS. It's a leading economic research institute based in South Africa. He spent a career in both the public and private sector as Chief Director in the Economic Development Department within the SA government. He spent some time at Standard Bank and you were, I think, saw for some time Chief of Staff to Lindiwe Hedricks when she was Minister of Water, Forestry, Minerals, Energy, I think a big portfolio there. You're an economist uh, by background, and you studied sociology at Wits University, I think I'm right in saying. So, so welcome to this podcast, and thanks so much for joining us. Great. Hi. I'm going to invite you, if I may, to tell us about your background, where you grew up, what you studied why you chose to pursue a career as an economist and the various career choices that you've made that land you now at TIPS. So I grew up in Durban in South Africa, which is a very relaxed city, and decided to then move to Johannesburg and study at WITS when I was finished school. And I decided on a BCom, but always was interested in the broader social issues. So Along the way, while I was doing my BCom, I picked up sociology as a second major. So I focused on economics and sociology. And then after that, I finished my undergraduate degree. I decided to go the sociology route, but focused a lot on the economic issues within sociology. So trying to understand how it all fits together from a societal perspective, where the economy fits in, and some of the core issues particularly inequality and poverty in South Africa, which are a big issue. It was at the time of the transition. So we looked at the RDP, we looked at the transition that South Africa was going through. I give away my age, but I was doing my, my master's during the time of that early 94 transition. So it was an interesting period to be studying and being involved in university life as well. After that, I did my master's thesis on small business as a, a way to get into the global economy as a way for small businesses to look at how they can get out of the narrow focus of South Africa and start exporting and getting into those kind of issues or places. Because you would know from pre-94 period, South Africa is a very closed economy. I mean, it was part of the sanctions, the international isolation. It was a period in which we needed to expand our understanding of the world. And so one of my first parts of my career was in small business development as a result. And I spent several years there, including looking at taking small businesses overseas, trying to get access to the global market, very difficult space to be in, and looking at growing that sector. And then I got into government directly. So that was for a government agency. I ended up working at DTR for a number of years, again, with a focus on small business. And then from there, I went into all sorts of different things. Suppose you have many careers in your life. I worked in minerals and energy and water and forestry at Standard Bank. Um, and then my last job before TIPS was at the Economic Development Department. And a big part of that work 
was looking at development finance institutions. I suppose my time at Standard Bank helped a lot with that in understanding the role of the financial sector in economic development. And then the other part of it was on looking at small business finance. And from there, I then moved into the policy advisory space, which is where TIPS is. And I've been here for about nine years now. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that overview, Saul. I'm keen to discuss the work that you're doing at TIPS currently. You're in a position of of influence. You have access to government. You understand how policy works and, and works its way through government. You're well supported by industry actors who commission very good research from you. I'm really interested to speak specifically about the state of industrialization in South Africa, and then to move on to trade. You do a lot of work in this area. You're a a leading voice and research institute. I wrote an article, I think it was in December last year, with a friend of mine who works in continental manufacturing business. And we wrote an article entitled Reimagining Industrialization in Southern Africa. And we were really motivated to write this because we are observing that the manufacturing sector within the region, its contribution to GDP is declining, in fact, and that that is devastating to see at a time when we know we've got this big youth unemployment problem, or more generally an unemployment problem, and where we need to be creating jobs and where we need to be investing in more manufacturing capability. I wonder if you could tell me in your expert view why we have not made the progress that we'd hoped to have achieved in terms of building a really strong manufacturing base. I've got a piece of data here that I picked up from a Eurostat report. It's not specific to South Africa, it's actually referencing the whole continent. It refers to the fact that so much of our goods that we export from the continent are in primary raw materials, and we are importing manufactured goods. It seems a travesty to me that we're exporting raw materials with little or no added value, and then we're consuming goods at a high expense, manufactured goods that we're importing from abroad. So we're continuously exporting and re-importing and paying for the export of these raw materials. And then they're way back with the value addition, the jobs created offshore. I've elaborated a little bit too much there, but I'd love to hear from you, please. Okay, you've covered quite a lot of questions there, but let me start with your first point. So the role that TIPS plays is to do economic research on what's going on in industrialization and industrial policy in South Africa. But we also look at the region and we work with a number of institutes across the region as well. So we often collaborate on projects and share ideas because it's important to have those connections. So our role as an economic research institute, we're a not-for-profit. We do a lot of our policy work to support the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition in South Africa. And we also work closely with some of the other economic departments. We get multiple funding, including some donor funding to cover our work on the just transition, which I'll, I'll get to just now, I'm sure. But the, the key issues that we're seeing is why hasn't South Africa industrialized to the extent that it needs to, and it, it could, and it probably should. And a core challenge is that when we look at the structure of the South African economy, it's it doesn't have the key manufacturing industries that generate the jobs, like we see in Asia particularly. So here I'm talking about clothing jobs, light electronic jobs. That's where, when we look at the Asian industrialization experience, it was in these 
low entry level type of manufacturing operations, simple technologies, assembling um, electronic componentry, making stuff that people need, which we, in theory, in South Africa, we could do. And we have had some capabilities along the way, and some of that has been lost. So we, we don't have those big job creating industries in South Africa, but we do have some very complex and sophisticated industries. And when we look at our capabilities, there are enormous capabilities across sectors. Broadly, our economy is fairly diverse in South Africa, not the region. And I'll get to that now because mm. we, we look at that as well. So if we look at the contribution of different industries in South Africa, we find that, you know, we've got some manufacturing, we've got some agriculture, mining, strong services sector. So the, the opportunities to diversify are definitely there. We're not getting into those kind of job creating manufacturing industries. And that's where we need to get into. And that's what you're talking about. We're exporting the raw materials. They're coming back as finished goods. And that mm. is a challenge. We export our ores. Sometimes we do a bit of processing on it, turn it into steel or ferrochrome or some stainless steel, and then we ship it out. So there's a danger in that because, you know, you have to export a lot to cover your import bill. And we do. I mean, we see over the last few years that South Africa has run a massive trade surplus by exporting vast amounts of commodities. Mm. It really has helped the country, but it doesn't generate the employment. Another big challenge, particularly for South Africa and less so for the region, is around our lack of an agricultural sector, particularly small-scale agricultural sectors. So the legacy of apartheid and before that, the colonial approach to trying to get workers into mines and into the workplace meant um, cutting back on small-scale agriculture. So if you think back to the 1913 Land Act, for example, it was a deliberate measure to basically kill the African peasant class. And as a result, we don't have a lot of people who have those types of enterprises. And when we do an analysis comparing South Africa to similar types of economies, we see we seriously fall short by not having a smallholder, small-scale agricultural sector. And typically people from there would then move into industry, but they still employ it. They still have an income and a livelihood. If you travel around the countryside in South Africa, you find there's landless slum settlements and it does represent a huge challenge. We don't also have the history of entrepreneurship in South Africa. So we have a formal small business sector that does fairly well. But there, there aren't enough formal small businesses. There isn't that legacy. And again, it dates back to some of the apartheid challenges where that was deliberately held back as an opportunity for black people to get into. You know, there, there was a very small entrepreneurial class in the black communities. And that legacy comes back to want us now. And it's something that the democratic government has tried to change. I know I spent several years in that space and it's enormously difficult. COVID was a disaster because it was just hit at the point where we could see a step change in entrepreneurship in South Africa. When we looked at the data, we saw the number of small businesses were really starting to grow and that was starting to create a different dynamic in the, the economy. And COVID set that all back. We seem to be getting through the worst of COVID now in terms of our bounce back. Our economy looks like it will be back to where we were pre-COVID at some point this year, which means that hopefully we can start to see both the small businesses growing again and the number of people employed growing again. 
Thanks for sharing that overview, Saul. I'd like to continue on this theme of industrialization with a focus on South Africa. And I know that you were at the South Africa Investment Conference, I think the fourth installment of this investment conference, um, just a fortnight ago. For the benefit of our audience, it's a conference that looks at the state of the economy in South Africa. There's about a thousand leading business figures, government officials and ministers you were in the auditorium there. Tell us a little bit about the sentiment in the room there. It was a very positive event. We saw the president, you know, acknowledging some of the challenges South Africa is facing, but committing to addressing them. We saw captains of industry, we saw small business people getting up on stage and talking frankly, but also saying, that the reality of the South African economy is actually better than the negative narrative around the South African economy. And, you know, you had someone like Adrian Gore getting up and saying a company that they established has been highly successful and has been able to break into new markets and become a global player. We're not talking about our successes enough. We, we talk more about what's going wrong, what the failures are. And so, the conference itself was really a message to say to the investors, both in South Africa and abroad, that there's a lot of investment happening. It's no, nowhere near enough, but we've got some big players and we've got some smaller players putting in resources, growing their enterprises, taking advantage of what's going on in the economy. The growth that we experienced last year was really huge. And the opportunities also for South Africa getting into the region and trade with the rest of the continent is really important and also represents a huge opportunity. South Africa does have a lot of really good infrastructure. Sure, that everyone admitted there were challenges, but the basics are there and the foundations are there. It was also an important event because it's brought together people who are investing in the economy, who are saying that we are putting in billions as individual companies. And some were only putting in millions, but that message was also given. So it wasn't only the big players who were saying we're doing business in South Africa. But for me, that's really important because you know, international people looking at South Africa or even the African continent, they're going to want to know are local people investing? Are they excited about this economy? And for years, we've seen you know, South African firms um, investing in Europe, investing in South America, investing in a whole range of other economies, Middle East, America, and making massive investments and growing their operations. And the message was never, we're investing in our own economy. And if I was sitting in a global corporate saying, why aren't the local corporates investing in their own economy? And these types of conferences really helped to change that. So I was impressed by that. And I was impressed by the commitments in the room and the vibrancy of what's going on and some big commitments. It was impressive. Mm. I wanted to touch a little bit on um, in relation to those South African corporates that you referenced who've invested overseas, as you said, in Latin America and in Europe, notably many of the big finance houses and retailers as well. Real estate investors chose to invest beyond African shores, beyond South Africa, and largely because of political risk, because of unconducive policy and constraining regulation. And my sense is that in the last 18 months, the South African government has been making 
an effort and delivering results in terms of getting through some of those key regulatory changes that have been such a challenge for successive ANC governments to get across the line. Notably, the energy liberalisation, so the provision for IPPs to produce energy to a certain megawattage. And most recently, I think in spectrum allocation, the big telcos have been asking for a long time now for greater allocation of spectrum. And finally, there's a provision for that. Do you feel like we've reached a bit of a tipping point and that we're going to find a much more conducive policy and regulatory environment for companies to invest at the scale that's needed? Yes. So one of the things that I've seen that's been a a marked shift between this administration and the previous one is the engagement between government and business. It's not always about a specific piece of legislation. It's about a blockage that comes up. So sometimes it is process around the spectrum allocation or you know, opening up the opportunities for private players in the energy market. But sometimes it's about an individual blockage. And if you don't have the dialogue, and not, not in a state capture kind of way, but it needs to be an engagement where businesses facing a constraint, they know who to phone in a government department, or there's a a process around engaging the politicians so that these things can be addressed and resolved and benefits an industry, not necessarily one individual firm. So we've had blockages at the ports, we've had problems with the, the railway lines, with cable theft, putting the trains off their schedule, so things like that. So being able to say, We know who to talk to. We know how we can get this resolved. It's a really important change for me because what the President Ramaphosa has done is he set up the relevant structures so that there are these bilaterals that take place on a regular basis and there is more room to pick up where the bottlenecks and the challenges are. And that's really important because when a firm hits that, they need to make that business decision. Where do we invest? If we can't get our ores from the mine to the port, let's rather go to Chile or a country that's going to be more accommodating and help fix these problems. So problems come up in business all the time, in infrastructure, the way things work. It's how you resolve those problems so that they can get back and they can start working again. And that is really a big shift that I've seen. The other big things, as you've said, are the the opening up of huge opportunities. Big investments are in the energy space. And it's not only... In the energy creation, it's also the autos companies looking at, you know, what are we looking at in terms around new energy vehicles? So that's on the horizon as well. And that's been an ongoing discussion between government and industry around how do we move to electric vehicles in a more systematic way? We're moving away from fossil fuels as a planet. What does that mean? These are big investments that people are going to need to make in infrastructure as well. If we don't have the charging technology set up, where do you charge your new vehicles? The battery storage is another area that's going to become really important. So there's a whole lot of new opportunities that are emerging in the economy as the terrain is shifting. And that ties directly into the just transitions. So as we're looking at moving away from coal-fired power stations and setting up renewable stations, battery storage, infrastructure, and What happens to the jobs in the coal sector? What happens to the jobs in the electricity industry? Your sun shines in a a province in South Africa that's different from where the coal is. Mm. Does ESCOM say we'll accept less returns on our solar generation and set up the infrastructure in Mpumalanga because we have the grid already connected there, but we won't get as much energy efficiency 
you know, so, so there's some hard questions that need to be made around that transition. But the work that we've been doing on that is looking at that entire value chain. And over the next 20 years, there's going to be lots of shifts that take place. People who pour petrol in petrol stations, your, your attendants there, do the petrol stations shift to energy refueling? I've seen some of them doing it, but is that where we're going? If we're looking at hydrogen fuel cells, you know, do they start storing hydrogen at petrol stations as well so that trucks can top up? There's talk about moving some vehicles to gas. What are the opportunities there? So all of these changes in technology will result in new opportunities. Whether they land in South Africa or in the rest of Africa is an important question, and that requires the investment and that engagement that I was talking about, is how do we make this a more orderly transition? It's great to hear that you're heavily involved in that conversation around the just transition. I know you have a, an annual dialogue, don't you, as tips annually, as the word suggests, and that this year the focus for that dialogue is on, on the just transition. I think there's a call for papers out. Tell us a little bit more about that annual dialogue and, and what you hope to get out of it. So what TIPS does is every year we have a policy conference where TIPS plays is that we bridge the divide between academia and government around policy research. So what we ask, we put out a call where we're asking people who are looking at policy relevant issues to start presenting their work, thinking about their work, submitting papers and engaging with policymakers who are working in that space. So we have a different theme every year. So previously, we've looked at regional economic development, we've looked at industrial finance. This year, we're focusing on the just transition and asking people to, to think around an area that's relatively new, globally, in fact, it's, it's relatively new. And how do we help government and the policymakers think through the shifts that are required. We've asked for papers to cover a whole range of different themes in that. So some will look at labor, some will look at finance, some will look at the environment, but all with the view to how do we think about this transition and look at the, the policy changes that need to take place. And particularly the workers who will be impacted, the, the coal mining industry, we, I'm sure we'll, we'll see some interesting uh, contributions on where all of that is going. I mean, at the moment, it's a very dynamic industry, but where, where the future is on that is complex. Yeah. I'm just reminded as an outcome of COP in Glasgow last year that um, South Africa was one of the big beneficiaries of a consortium of finance made available by OECD donors, climate finance, to aid South Africa with that just transition. I think an indication of just how important South Africa's transition is to the rest of the world, given your relative dependence on coal. And I think, yeah, you, you pointed to the fact that it's relatively novel, all this attention on, on the just transition. But the truth is, the pace of acceleration that we're seeing is, is really unprecedented in terms of the structural shifts that are happening to the global economy and accelerated by more recent events in Ukraine, of course, and the sanctioning of Russia. My own concern is that many African states are really not ready for this shift and they will lose out. And the trillions of dollars of capital that have been raised globally for investments in infrastructure and clean energy may bypass our continent and find a home in Asia or other countries that are faster to evolve the policies and frameworks 
and basic infrastructure that's required to support investments in these areas. That's, it's great to hear that South Africa and, and you in particular at TIPS are sort of taking a lead and trying to model out what the just transition can look like for South Africa. Just last week, funnily enough, I was speaking with the Anglo-American who have been working hard over the last five years in trying to evolve what is now the, the hydrogen corridor, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is a, a big ambitious plan and offers to create thousands of jobs and build an industry that can export. And we know that there are many countries, continents in the world that need African clean power. And South Africa has comparative advantage in some of these areas of hydrogen specifically, but other renewables. It's a very exciting point for our continent generally, for South Africa specifically. And we need more organizations like yours encouraging that dialogue and the development of policy frameworks and guidelines that can give confidence to investors to move in and, and invest at scale. I want to move on, if I, if I may, to trade. I warned you that, that I wanted to talk about trade. You do a lot of work on trade policy. Those of us who are either African observers or involved in business and policy on the African continent, we are obviously acutely aware of the coming into force of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, beginning of 2021. I want to get a sense from you on how you feel progress has been to date. I have my own views. And to get a little bit of a prognosis of what you think that agreement has in store in terms of creating better economies of scale for many of our businesses on the continent to trade more with each other. I mentioned that article I co-authored last year called Reimagining Industrialization in Southern Africa. And, and the point I made in that article was that the percentage of total exports intra-SADAC, so within SADAC countries, has stagnated. It's stagnated for um, the last five years or so at a relatively small level. And that's not encouraging, obviously. Enough from me, Saul. Over to you on the subject of trade. Thanks. I mean, the key issue around trade is what are you trading? And that's where the specific challenges around the lack of industrialization across the continent is a, a bottleneck or a constraint. So there are things that we can trade but it isn't sufficient. But when, when we look at interstatic trade, it has been stagnating and COVID certainly saw it declining. But, but when we compare SADC, for example, to Mercosur, there's probably more SADC trade there, than Mercosur. And that's obviously slightly less than we see in ASEAN, but way below what we would see in the European or NAFTA and regions like that. So who do we benchmark ourselves against? We definitely can't benchmark ourselves against the EU, but I think that's where we would like to be with the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. And that's the, I suppose, the ambition of why we would want to unlock trade among the continent, because it creates huge opportunity. And while we've seen such strong impetus behind the AFCFTA, there's been many attempts at getting these agreements over the, the past few decades. The AFCFTA has moved the quickest, and I think there's a recognition that we just have to get this done. There are a few bottlenecks, and one of the bottlenecks is, for example, around clothing and rules of origin, and it's something that we've been looking at quite closely because it's a, an area where 
you have countries that are competing and countries that have an ambition to get into that space because it is a big job creator and does create entry-level jobs at scale if you get it right. And some countries have gone into that already and in a very basic ways. How much do you beneficiate? There's the discussion on that. There's all that of technical terms, which I'll avoid now, but there's a, a degree of uneasiness around these negotiations. But one of the things that we were discussing the other day is that you can't just look at one sector in isolation. You have to say, if we want to, for example, get some countries working on automotive and others working on clothing and textiles, or some working on clothing, some working on textiles, then there's an opportunity to do some horse trading. And that's what trade negotiations are all around. We want to grow the sector. We've got some capabilities in the sector. How do we offset that with a, a compromise in another sector? And that's really what the negotiators have to be taking into consideration that not everyone can do everything. And if we want to get the economies of scale around specialization and you know, some countries focusing, for example, on textiles and get to the point where it's cost competitive, high quality textiles that are supplying their neighboring countries. I mean, that's where you want to be. And that's what we've seen happen in other regions of the world. So it's not an impossible dream. But to mm. get there is going to require a lot of careful negotiation, but also bringing the private sector on board because governments can't do these things without the partners in the private sector making the investments, bringing in the technology, finding the new markets and being competitive in a way that means we don't need to import from Bangladesh or China or whoever the, the competitor regions are. So those things are important. And then the, the lack of diversification of economies in the region, I think is a particularly a big challenge. So when we look at South Africa's economy, as I mentioned earlier, it's fairly diversified. That becomes a problem. For example, you look at Angola, they're very, very fuel dependent. The level of what they can export, it's not a balanced basket of goods. Um, other countries are more agricultural focused. So the industrial capabilities need to be looked at closely. And if you do have an undiversified economy, it does present a risk. And so I suppose part of your thinking around reimagining industrialization across the region is absolutely critical because once we have those capabilities, then it does unlock new opportunities to trade. You've got different things you can trade. You can get that specialization and the scale. But one of the important things that we looked at and we've worked with a sister institution on is around as the South African retailers are investing across the continent. Um, and we see some of our big players have made significant inroads across the continent. There's an opportunity to localize and use the distribution channels created by these retailers to have something made in one country, for example, Botswana and sold in South Africa through that retail network. And countries are looking at how do they localize as much as possible, but there has to be a regional consideration given to those localization imperatives. It can't just be we isolating ourselves from the region and want to do everything. And South Africa in particular has to realize that it's going to have to give up on certain localization drives so that it can benefit its neighboring countries and support their industrialization. Another challenge that we see when we look at the data is that South Africa's economic development compared to most of the other countries in the region means that our, our neighboring countries don't have a lot of buying power. And if those economies were lifted, then the opportunities for further trade 
becomes a lot you know, more. Mm. So then you can start saying, once you get a level of growth and a level of economic prosperity at a broad base, that is a further stimulus for growth and trade opportunity. So there's a few things that need to happen. One of the things we have seen with the AFCFTA is the prioritization of industrialization accompanying it. So we see recently there was the announcement of a, a panel on industrialization that's part of the AFCFTA. So it's an Africa-wide panel to support mm. industrialization. So maybe there's people there that you can talk to about what their thinking is in order to get the message, you know, more than just at the political speak, but into the economy saying, how are we going to get this right? And that's the trend we need to look for. Yeah. I speaking to you today from Kabarone, Botswana, and I'd love to see across Southern Africa, more value chain integration between the economies within the region. I think if we're to leapfrog into some of these new industries, we need all the advantage that, we, that comes from different actors contributing with different skill sets across different parts of the value chain. Because the opportunity is enormous, as you presented earlier, in terms of whether it's electric vehicle manufacturing or all these areas of opportunity that the just transition presents. Thanks for that, Saul. I am very conscious of the time, and I think we're just about nearing the end here, but I traditionally ask our guests one final question, and that is, what are you reading at the moment? So at the moment, I'm reading a book by Kate Phillip, who's a, a colleague of mine, and it's called Markets on the Margin, Mine Workers, Job Creation and Enterprise Development is the subtitle of the book. It's really interesting because it explores the efforts to get cooperatives going in South Africa. I've enjoyed reading the book. I'm, I'm halfway mm. through and it's giving quite interesting insights. Great. So that's Kate Phillip and Markets on the Margin. We'll include information about tips in our show notes, including your, your website. So our audience can go and have a look and see the, the great and impressive work that you do. I've referenced your annual dialogue on the just transition, 1st, 2nd of August, taking place in South Africa. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. It's our first time Great. meeting, so I'm, I'm really yeah. grateful. I'm a fan of your work, and it's been lovely to get a, a bit of a tour de force from you in terms of South African industrial policy, but trade policy, both on a continental and then a regional level, and to get a, a pretty upbeat message and tone from you about, frankly, about the fact that industry, and certainly in the case of the South African government and the way that you explained to us, are awake and aware of the significant opportunities that lie, not just from the just transition, but from these seismic shifts that are occurring to the global economy, and are busy trying to prepare the South African economy and industry for those opportunities. So that's, it's great and encouraging to hear. Thank you for your time, Saul. Great. Thanks. And good to meet you. Thank you for tuning into our Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.